Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. This is a recording of one of Grattan's public events. All right, everyone, I think we'll get started. Um, thank you very much all for coming to this Grattan Institute um, forward thinking event at the State Library of New South Wales. Um, I would like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, um, and paying my respect to their elders past, present and emerging. Uh, my name is Danielle Wood. I'm a program director at the Grattan Institute um, and I am thrilled to be joined today by uh, Gabrielle Chan. Um, Gabby, for those that um, haven't come across her work, has been a journalist for more than 30 years. She's currently a political journalist and politics live blogger at Guardian Australia and previously she's worked at The Australian, ABC Radio, Daily Telegraph in local newspapers and politics. Um, she's written and edited history books, biographies and even cookbooks, which is intriguing. Um, Gabby is the daughter of Singaporean migrants. Um, she moved from the press gallery to a small country town in, in 1996, which um, many of you will remember as the year Pauline Hanson was first elected to federal parliament. Um, she became obsessed at that time um, about the economic and cultural divide between the city and country and the lives of rural people. Um, Gabby's just been telling me about a book that she has underway to be released next year, um, looking at um, looking at that divide and differences in political views in the cities and regions. So she's extremely well qualified to, to weigh in on the topic tonight um, about the growing divide between cities and regions. And I'm going to focus um, on economics, on culture and on politics. So we're going to kind of traverse um, quite a, a wide set of topics. Um, and so the way we're going to structure things is a, a little bit different to um, other Grattan events I've done here. Um, we've been doing some work um, both on kind of the economic trends of cities versus regions uh, and we're doing a, a big report on um, voting trends. So basically the increase in minor party vote in Australia and why it's going up particularly strongly in regional areas. Um, so I'm going to put up a series of slides which kind of feature parts of all of that analysis um, and then we'll sort of um, you know, have a discussion and, and try and get behind some of the, the figures. Um, if you would like to tweet the event, um, you can do so. Um, the addresses are up there. It's at Grattan Institute, at the State Library of New South Wales, and the hashtag is forward thinking. Um, so if we see you all hunched over your phones, I'm going to assume that you're tweeting and you know, not texting your partner about what you're going to have for dinner afterwards and <laughs> not bored. Hopefully not bored. Um, so we have a lot to cover, but Gabby, I thought before we kind of get into the nitty gritty, can you give us um, a bit of a sense of how, how you went from living in a terrace in Surrey Hills um, to living on a sheep farm in regional New South Wales and, and, and what that kind of culture shock was like for you? Uh, yeah, I can. Um, welcome everyone and thanks for coming. Uh, love. Love was the reason <laughs> I moved. Um, I was in the press gallery here uh, at Macquarie Street um, in 91 to 95 and uh, met my husband who is a farmer. And um, as Danielle said, my father migrated from Singapore in the 60s, uh, married my mum who's Anglo-Australian. Um, and we had never met any farmers. We didn't know anyone west of the divide. We'd been on one trip, I think, across the Hay Plain 
um, to Adelaide, seven of us with my grandmother, um, my Chinese grandmother in a, in a Ford Cortina. So heaven help what the locals in Hay thought at the time with all of us trailing out of the car. So I had no experience of it. Um, and so when I moved there, if you remember the 90s, you'll remember that we were in the middle of the Mabo debates, native title decision had just come down. Um, and we were coming into the 1996 election with uh, John Howard. Pauline Hanson made a first appearance, um, first as a Liberal Party MP, and then once she was disendorsed, she, of course, got across the line as an independent. So it was that sort of context. And, the, I mean, the cultural divide that I saw was vast. I mean, walking into my town of um, it's probably about three and a half thousand people in the region in the in the local government area it's probably two thousand in the town um, I had never seen a town in my life that felt so white to me I felt like everyone was staring at me at the time so it was it was quite a quite a jump and um, I guess the thing that struck me then was at some stage I want to write about it but I had to understand it first. And I don't pretend to understand it fully still, the gap between city and country, but the way I work things out is I write about them. So that's what I've endeavoured to do. So I've taken some time off to actually leave the press gallery for a couple of months and go back to my main street and talk to people about what they're thinking and feeling about politics. Well, it's amazing what love can do, isn't it? <laughs> um, and hopefully, you know, tonight we'll we'll go some way in, in exploring those divides. Um, for full disclosure, I'm very much a kind of inner city person. Um, I live in one of the inner suburbs of Melbourne. I squeeze into a, a very small apartment with a with a partner and a toddler and two dogs. So um, I can I can very much bring a, a different perspective to this discussion. Um, so I wanted to start with the question of the economic divide. Um, and I think the, the sort of mythology out there is kind of the bush doing it tough um, and there's, there's elements of, of truth to that. Um, I want to talk through some of the work that we've done that really suggests um, a bit more of a nuanced picture though. Um, so the first thing I want to talk about is income um, and incomes in, in cities versus regions. So this is using data from the tax office, it's people's taxable income. Um, the horizontal axis is how far you are from a capital city GPO. So the further along you are, the more regional. Um, and each of those orange dots is a postcode. So that's showing you average taxable income in the postcode. Um, so the chart on the left basically shows that incomes are higher on average in the city compared to the regions. Um, that's probably not a surprise to people. Um, what we actually found was more surprising is the chart on the right, which looks at income growth over the past decade. Um, and what that shows is really there's not that much difference um, in average income growth. So in terms of per person incomes, um, the gap between the cities and the regions doesn't seem to be widening. Um, so that to us was a, a somewhat surprising result. Um, we started kind of unpacking different indicators of the health of the economy. Um, this looks at unemployment, um, no clear sort of city regional pattern. Uh, basically, there's, it's a sort of a patchwork. Um, there's areas of strong disadvantage in the regions. Um, far north Queensland, um, you know, really stands out. Unemployment rates in excess of 40%. Um, so, you know, very strong entrenched disadvantage in those areas. 
But there's also, um, you know, particular suburbs in, in Melbourne and Sydney where unemployment is also pretty pretty high and entrenched. Um, and there's there's a whole lot of other economic indicators you can look at. Um, Productivity Commission is doing a report on kind of economic resilience and looking at that by region. Um, and their finding is sort of similar that there's there's areas of strong disadvantage in both regions and cities, but not a sort of clear city regional divide. The one exception is really population growth, and that's where um, we do see that things look different. Um, so those um, sort of black dots along the east coast are essentially the, the major cities. So population has been growing really strongly in the past decade, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne. Um, reasonable population growth in some of the sort of areas along the east coast and, and the mining regions in Western Australia. Um, if you zoom in on those maps, and these are all available on the Grattan website in kind of interactive form, you'll see that some of the big regional centres are also growing, particularly the ones within commuting distance of the, the cities. Um, but there's that sort of whole swathe of regional Australia where, um, you know, population is either kind of stagnating or, or going backwards. Um, so, Gabby, I'm interested, I've just thrown a whole lot of economic indicators at you, but I'm interested in your thoughts of kind of how that marries up with, you know, what you're seeing in your region or what you're hearing in um, compiling stories for your book. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, l let me start by talking a little bit about my town uh, and I don't want to focus um, just on my town but I, a couple of qualifiers, right? So regional and rural Australia is obviously vastly different right across the country and I think the debate that we um, carry out in the media and in politics too much sort of assumes that it's this one blob or mass that all thinks the same way in the way that, you know, any any group does. Um, it's not like that. There are patches of um, places that are doing really well and patches that are doing badly. Now, my town is Harden, which is uh, 90 minutes west of Canberra. And um, what I've chosen to do is, is look in a kind of hyper-local sense because I can't hope to know what's going on in lots of different regions. So um, the, our town was uh, a railway town. It was built around the railways and agriculture. And so what happened uh, at home is that, you know, the Griner government came in probably late 80s, uh, Hawke and Keating were in the process of, you know, deregulating uh, the, the economy. Um, and so things were changing pretty fast. So, for example, we had 220 jobs on the railway uh, in the 80s and that slowly went down. So that's gone down. We had a big um, abattoir, which we lost mid-noughties um, in the drought of the mid-noughties. So, so there were certain sort of trends that were happening that mean that in a small town like ours, you know, there was we were being buffeted by changes that um, were really changing the fabric and structure of the town um, more so than any other time. You know, probably in the in the last century almost, you know, that no longer could you leave school, um, you know, in year nine or ten and get a job at the railway, which, uh, you know, a lot of the older people that I talked to um, basically left school at 14 or 15 because they knew they had a job to go to. They knew they could go to the abattoirs or the railway or something like that. So that really changed things. 
Um, so for towns like ours, I think the big challenge is losing people, um, not just to the cities. Um, if you talk to the Regional Australia Institute, Jack Archer, who does a lot of policy work in this area, actually the the loss of people to the cities is slowing and they're tending to go to regional centres, probably because you can't afford to go to Sydney anymore. You know, you've got to find a place to live, which all of you know, know better than anyone else. Um, and that's the other thing about this divide. Like, I don't want to, to um, uh, you know, pretend the bush is only doing it tough. It's really hard to live in cities as well. And the reason I wanted to talk about this stuff is because somehow there are complementary problems that maybe, you know, some smart policy brains could wrap their heads around and, and come out with solutions for for people in, in both areas. So, yeah, so our small town, gentle population, um, sort of stagnation, decline in some, you know, in some areas, um, but losing people to regional centres they're looking for work. Yeah, I mean, that absolutely comes out in the data. You can see that, you know, in the same way that the, the cities are kind of exerting a gravitational pull on the areas around, the regional centres are doing the same. I came across the term today, I hadn't heard before, they call them sponge centres or sponge cities. Yeah. The idea that they're kind of sucking in people from the, the surrounds mm. um, is absolutely happening. I, I do want to come back to that point um, you raised about kind of well-being and difficulties of living in cities because I think that's a really important one. Um, I do have a chart that goes to um, your, your question of those long-term trends. I just quickly wanted to touch on this one. Um, you know, if you look at what's driving those kind of population shifts, um, a, a big component of the population growth in this country over the past decade has been migration. Um, and so probably not surprisingly, the migration patterns look a lot like the, the population in general. So migrants have tended to locate um, in the cities, um, somewhat in the regional centres, um, quite a few in the, the mining areas in WA, but um, otherwise not particularly going to areas of regional Australia. Um, and in our recent report, we sort of cut this, um, we sort of broke it down by, by country of origin and particular migrant groups. The differences are even more stark. So um, Asian migrants, African, Middle Eastern, very much concentrated um, in the major cities and even particular parts of the major cities and um, you know they have a very small share of the population. Can I just throw areas? a spanner in the works there? Yep. Um, again, to quote Jack Archer at the Regional Australia Institute, they say about 150 of 500 plus local government areas are now getting slight population increases from overseas migration. So the thing we don't know, though, in those figures is whether that is primarily migration from Western countries like England, yep. um, New Zealand, uh, you know, the US, or, or whether it's uh, whether it's further afield than those Yeah, those I mean, you countries. can cut it in this data and you do see that kind of the English-speaking migrants tend to be more dispersed yeah. than the other migrants, but... You know the point that I was was coming to, which I think feeds in, is it's migrants. You know, go where the where the jobs where are. Where the jobs are. Yeah. Um, so you know, I just had this fantastic woman. Um, was a refugee resettlement officer in Border Town in South Australia. It's a you know, it's a town of two and a half thousand people, um, but they they still have their meat works, their abattoir there, um, and they find it difficult to to get locals to, to fill the available positions. So they have four hundred or so refugees or newly arrived. 
yeah. Australians working there, and that's been a big boost to the population, and that's because there there are jobs, and so people and I will, think, will move yeah, when I there think, are other jobs. I think the MP there um, was one of the ones who complained about the change in the 457 visa program um, because that those abattoirs were getting a lot of uh, people on 457 visas oh, um, to fill those jobs, and... Then the town very close to us, half an hour away, is Young, which is a population of around about 10,000. There's a, a growing Lebanese-Australian population there, um, and I think they initially came in to work on the cherry um, orchards and also in the abattoir at Young, and so now it's it's got to the point where Arabic is, is the second most spoken language after English, it's still tiny, you know, it's sort of 2% or something like that. But still, it's not a language that you expect to see in a country yep. town coming up in the top five languages, you know. Yes, uh, it's always, I guess, the, you, you, can, you can never totally generalise yeah. about these issues. Yeah. It's purely a diversity of experience. Um, I wanted to, you know, come back to the, the point you were making about those kind of longer-term structural changes in the economy, which, I, you know, is driving a lot of these differences in in population growth and, and job opportunities um you know i think it's you know really stark when you look at it over that kind of time horizon going back you know more than 100 years um you can see that agriculture um it's it's held up as a, a share of the economy but employment in agriculture has been declining over the very long term as farms have become a lot more efficient and capital intensive um, manufacturing's really been in decline since the the 1970s Mining um, is is a small employer overall. Um, obviously important in particular regions, but um, I think the mining industry has been quite successful in convincing us it's a kind of more important employer in a national sense than it than it really is. Um, and and you know services is it just really jumps out at you. We have eight eight in ten Australians are now employed in the services sector, um, and those. Um, sectoral shifts have big implications for, for where jobs are located. So um, professional services jobs, um, you know, law, engineering, IT, um, they do tend to cluster, not just in the cities, but the, the inner cities um, because of what economists call agglomeration economies. Um, those sort of firms benefit from being close to other firms, being close to a really big pool of available workers. Um, so we see this movement of business activity into the cities um, other services jobs like health and education obviously more dispersed but um, so you know this is what's sitting behind a, a lot of those broader population trends is these kind of big economic forces um, so it's given that context I mean I think the the really difficult question is um, you know what what can governments do um, you know I'm interested in your views Gabby and you know do people in the regions worry you know does this kind of population question feed on the psyche if you're in a region where it's stagnating and what do people want governments to do about it? Yeah, it, it really does and people talk about times um, and, and it probably coincides with about 1950s there um, where agriculture was, was going really well. Um, you know, for our region there was a wool boom, um, manufacturing was going really well uh, and so they hark back to that time. They hark back to a, a time where there were more jobs and there were more connections between city and country. You know that um, when people had rallies in the city or the bush. You know, so there was there was more of a personal connection. I think the 
the the further away that um, people have got. For example, you know, if, as a migrant kid, like we had no relatives, we didn't know anyone in the country. So, so those personal relationships, I think, are really important. Um, and so people talk about industry. So um, when I came, I got onto council committees and all sorts of things to try and help the um, economy or, you know, think of ways. Every country town is doing this, by the way. You know, we're all trying to reinvent the wheel and work out a way to bring all of you to the country and convince you that it's the best place to live ever. And so I thought about it in terms of, you know, we've got to tart up the main street and and really make everything look nice and serve really nice coffee and then you'll all come. Um, but in a lot of my interviews, you know, talking to, say, an old stockman, he's saying, well, you know, we don't want to spend money on the main street. We want the money spent in an industry, you know, and, and I spent a year on the local paper and one of the first stories I did was about a council survey to the whole area. And um, so people came up with ideas for businesses like, you know, a rabbit farm or a sausage factory I think there's a real expectation that at some stage some white knight is going to ride in and create a business that will um, bring a lot of um, semi-skilled jobs or skilled jobs that they can train up for um, but when you look at those figures of manufacturing and when you consider I think it, even in China manufacturing jobs have peaked right and I'm reading about now dark factories with robots where you know there's no jobs like that anymore you know they don't even have to turn the lights on now in those sorts of factories oh, I think that's uh, I mean, those jobs yeah so so coming back ha there is a real kind of there's starting to be a realization that oh maybe we have to think about this in a different way you know when I start thinking about it in a different way I mean something the the jobs that are in the regions and are going to be growing in the regions, I think are the, the services jobs in, in health, in education, in aged care as the population ages. Um, that requires a bit of a shift in mindset. I think, um, you know, people that previously would have gone into, say, factory jobs or agricultural jobs, um, you know, telling them the opportunities uh, are in aged care, I think that, that really does require a bit of um, a shift and maybe a a change in sentiment in the way as a community we, we talk about caring jobs and, and why they're important but that seems to me where those opportunities will be yeah in the future yeah uh, one of the things that I picked up that I hadn't when I was you know full-time in the press gallery was the the sort of sadness and anger about the hollowing out of of the TAFE system or the change in the TAFE system so um, for example, a friend of mine, her daughter want, wanted to do hairdressing. Um, we have a TAFE campus half an hour away, but you can't get a hairdressing course. You've got to drive an hour and a half away to get a hairdressing course. Um, and so, you know, how's a kid, a 16-year-old kid who's trying to marry, you know, vet course with um, year 11 and 12, which you have to do, mm -hmm. you know, till, till the end of year 12 now pretty much. Um, how, how is that kid with a, with a working single mother going to travel that distance to fulfil her TAFE requirements to qualify for something like hairdressing, which you can get a job in every single country town. Like we, our 
town population is quite small and we probably have, you know, four or five hairdressers in our town. Everyone so. needs their haircut. <laughs> yeah. Same with trades and apprentices, you know, that there's everyone's got to go out to get an apprenticeship pretty much. So they go to Canberra or they go to Wagga and then we have to somehow draw them back. And do they come back? Some of them do. Some of them do. Place is really important to people. Um, much more important, I would say, than, uh, say, professional, a lot of professional globalised classes. Um, having your parents close or having your kids close so you can take part in the lives of kids and grandchildren is, is really valued, which I think, I think may be part of the answer as to why those wellbeing figures are a little bit higher in rural areas. Um, that sense of identity is very much, my sense of identity is built through my job and yours is probably too. Um, but identity is built from place because yeah. they've worked hard to um, create that sense that, you know, they are a valued person in the community or, um, you know, they're a hard worker. And I know, you know, if, we're, if, if my husband's hiring, you know, they want to know the local person they know his family. They know they're really hard workers. Why wouldn't you? you why wouldn't you employ a local? Well, that is a, a lovely segue, maybe from economics into into lifestyle. And, and you mentioned there the well-being figures. Um, you know, there, there's all sorts of measures of, of well-being you can look at. This one's um, one that's published by Australian Unity. It, it looks into satisfaction with health, personal relationships, standard of living, and sense of community. Um, and the dark areas mean higher well-being um, and, and basically the, the regions um, well and truly outperform the cities, at least on average. Um, certainly the, the sort of the top 10 electorates by well-being mm. are all in either rural or regional areas. Um, Gabby, I've also enjoyed some of your articles actually about the kind of the joys of country living. <laughs> um, you know, what what is it about, you know, why do you think it is that, that, that well-being is so much higher? You've talked about the sense of place. Is there more going on there? Yeah, it's sort of counterintuitive because it goes against the, the um, debate and the media that you see that everything's sort of going down the gurgler. Yeah. Um, but I think it is that sense of place. Um, and for me, you know, it's hard, it's really hard to generalise, but for me, it just the transition happened, and and it was very difficult at first. But it sort of opened my eyes to a whole lot of other things that I would never have come across had this, you know, life-changing decision not been made. Um, I think knowing people in your community, I, I I found really really nice to go back home is is especially when you've been working all week at the press gallery is you know just a breath of fresh air um to know people on the street to know families that my kids have gone through school with and to watch where they go and you know how they develop i think is really really um fulfilling in a way um and to have that sense of cohesiveness um you know people make uh reasons to get together because you are a bit isolated um so so there's that aspect um and I think also for me it's a natural world because I had no sense of the natural world here in Sydney yeah. and so that that really 
I think gave me a quality and changed the perspective for me. Yeah, really interesting. I mean, I think you know when I look at when I look at that data, I almost sort of flip around the previous economic discussion and say, what you know, what should government be doing to improve people's well-being in the in the cities? Yeah, well, um, I, I do wonder whether there's some you know because if you look at data like that and then you look at say health outcomes, that health outcomes are down, but you know, maybe without that, they'd be down a lot further. Yeah. yeah maybe there's right. some sort of X factor that, you know, hasn't been measured by economists. Well, and there's a lot that hasn't been measured by economists, but, you know, we're not particularly good at measuring well-being. Um, you know, I think one one reason I think that sits behind some of that is, um, you know, a, a finding that's really consistent in the well-being literature internationally is one of the best predictors of well-being is the inverse of your commute time. Um, and as commutes get longer and longer in cities, um, I think that does have a, a big impact on people's well-being. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that, that is areas where government has some control in terms of, you know, where, where we're putting houses. Yeah. Um, should we be increasing density in kind of inner and middle ring rather than, you know, increasingly spreading supply on the fringes of the cities? Um, infrastructure, congestion charging, all of those things feed in. Um, sense of community is something that I think it's much harder for, for any kind of policy intervention to, yeah. to do anything about that that sort of comes organically and, and through the individuals and, and structures in particular communities. Yeah, well, I wonder though, density, um, you have to have the conversation though, don't you? So with the people in a city, you have to have a conversation about do you want increased density? Or do you, you know, do you want to live that way, or do you want to, do you want more space? And I, I wonder if anything's been done. I don't know if, um, whether you know anything's been done about, you know, the, the the idea of living outside of Sydney and commuting in, so changing infrastructure, so so you've got a faster commute in on public transport. Um, yeah, and those those debates have been going on mm. a long time. So they mm. certainly um, in Victoria um, upgraded the regional rail. Um, and so you have more, a lot more people now kind of commuting in from, from Bendigo, um, those types of places. Um, but, you know, nowhere near enough to kind of address the, the, the rate at which population's been growing in yeah. the cities. I fantasise about a very fast train to Canberra, but um, Andrew Lee tells me there'll be driverless cars before I get yeah. a very fast train. I don't think the economics <laughs> stack up, I'm sorry to tell you. Oh. <laughs> Um, why don't we talk a little bit about the the cultural divide now? Um, so I just wanted to start with um, sort of differences in, in demographics. Um, so we've already talked a little bit about um, you know proportion of foreign born tends to be lower um, in regional areas on average. Um, age median age tends to be higher. Um, income we've already said tends to be lower um, and proportion of higher education um, is lower particularly compared to the inner city and that gap is is widening over time um, anything that surprises you there or that all is as you expected no I mean you, we've been hearing this for a long time all of those figures haven't we yeah um, the I mean I can talk about the cultural gap in terms of migration as well one of the one of my interview subjects is a is a girl called Maggie Kate, um, and she's actually Bernie the stockman's uh, granddaughter, and uh, her mum is a single mum, has been uh, working in Harden. They all grew up in Harden, um, 
and she Maggie Kate is the first kid from the local high school to get straight into medicine um, as far as we know <laughs> going back for some time but that that uh, qualification into medicine was really just the start of a big journey for her so you think you know we're four hours out of Sydney but um, she had to come in and li- the idea of living in a big city is is so foreign to some of these kids who have been in Sydney one night in their life or um, we have a program at our local primary school where we take kids in to Chinatown for a leadership program in year six and uh, every every year there are kids who have never been to Sydney before and you think oh really you know three and a half hours away four hours away um, so you forget there's these gaps of experience and so for Maggie Kate coming into New South Wales Uni where a lecture hall like this you know um, so 90% multicultural background students um, and who does she hang out with she hangs out with the international students but she's like a migrant she 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 knows no experience in Sydney, whereas everyone else had these kind of shared experience, even navigating public transport systems. These are the things that, you know, we you, we miss out on in a, in a small town. So do you think that kind of sense of how, how different it is deters yeah. other, I mean, yeah. Maggie Kate's obviously yeah. jumped in and done yeah, it, which yeah. is brilliant, yeah, but yeah. do you think others are less likely to, well, to go I on think, when they I think it makes it much harder. Like I think it makes makes it much harder and so for you know the 2014 budget um Abbott's first budget uh, really kind of stood out to me some of the measures in that like um you know no unemployment benefits say for the first six months for kids you know under 25 I just think you know I had conversations with with MPs and said, you know, you know, a country town. Like, what do you do? Do you move out? Is a kid going to move away away from any emotional and parental support, uh, even a house to live in, you know, to get a job? These are these are things that policymakers need to take into account when when making policies like this, because it's just not the same. It's not, you know, the kind of it's. It's not. There's not this huge supply that kids of jobs around us anyway that kids are just sitting there and don't want to have. You know, don't don't feel like doing it. It's, it's there are different issues. So you just got to look through, I guess, a, a, a number of different filters when you're making policy. Yeah. Um, talk a little bit about some of the. Um, so we've been looking a lot at survey data and differences in attitudes between particular regions. Um, and, and this was kind of a, a finding that surprised me was on a lot of these questions of, sort of what I would call social liberalism. Um, so we've got there um, marijuana, decriminalisation, abortion, marriage equality. Um, there's other ones like euthanasia or um, criminal sentencing. There's not actually strong differences um, on average between cities and regions. Um, and, you know, if I can put up the... Um, same-sex marriage vote um, by electorate. What we saw is, yes, inner-city areas were more likely to vote yes, um, but once you kind of got about 20, 30 Ks from cities, region didn't really seem to play much of a role. Um, You had regional areas with low yes vote, like um, regional Queensland, but you had 
regional Victoria with quite a high yes vote. Um, you had parts of cities, parts of Sydney, for example, had quite a low yes vote. Um, so n more differences kind of um, across particular states and within states, so not much differences in terms of attitudes in cities and regions. Um, do you find that surprising or does that sort of accord with uh, hearing from I, I expected our seat to be um, slightly lower um, and and it was, uh, but still 55% I think voted yes. Um, I did go to a social function where I think it was a 50th birthday and so probably everyone was around about that age or up and I don't think I found a single bloke that was going to vote yes. <laughs> Maybe just a function of that particular. Well, I think um, all the polls suggested that age was a yeah, pretty important yeah, determinant of yeah, yeah. likely voting intention. Yeah. Um, but talking to a young gay guy in town, uh, he said he'd had quite a few young people his age who had said to him, if I didn't know you, I would be voting no. So I think the thing about the, the same-sex marriage debate is is personal relationships again and that changes things for people and I think that then Especially, makes sense why you're not going to yeah. get that locational element yeah. because you know almost everyone either yeah. directly yeah. or through yeah. a family member is, is going to know someone yeah. in that boat mm. um, you know, that and, and marijuana I think maybe um, might be a new regional industry perhaps <laughs> yeah well it's, it's regional industry <laughs> but it's also I think a lot of the marijuana debate in politics is centred around pain relief yes yeah and that's that's another issue that that comes. A lot up. of people have personal, yep. same with yep. euthanasia, yep. sort of a personal experience. Um, you know, that might also feed into this difference that we see. Um, so you know, it sort of doesn't matter which measure you take. Um, people in regions tend to have more negative attitudes towards immigrants or believe that immigrant intake should be reduced. Um, as we said, that sort of inversely proportional to kind of actual share of immigrants living in, in particular areas. Um, do you think that is about kind of just not having as much sort of personal connection with immigrants on a day-to-day -day basis and therefore greater levels of fear? Or? Yeah, I've really, I've really puzzled over the, this. Um, there seems to be a disassociation uh, between an individual and a group. So talking to people about, you know, Muslim immigration usually comes up in a conversation around politics um, when, you know, for my interviews, not in everyday conversation, but um, for the people that I'm interviewing. And we've had two Muslim doctors in the town since the late 70s. Um, and they, they became, you know, th the whole town relied on these doctors and they were fantastic I mean they know everything about our families everything about our lives you know um, when my son broke his arm you know they were the ones coming in on a Sunday to the hospital um, but there seems to be a disassociation well he he's okay and I think the other thing is that they both married local girls so there was this kind of um, integration uh, happening. Same with, you know, foreign foreign investment is also another big issue that keeps coming up and you'll see in a lot of surveys. Um, foreign investment, particularly by the Chinese, and again, there's a disassociation. It's not about me. The, the fact that I'm part Chinese, it's, it's you know, it's that idea of it that, that makes people uncomfortable. 
So I don't know what the answer is, but but there's definitely a disassociation and talking to people, you know, maybe it's a critical mass or something. Um, I know with young, with their, with the Lebanese population there, um, they have had very few problems. Um, you know, there's there is some sort of low level, but no more than anywhere else. So you know, yeah. I mean, I think that critical mass theory makes sense because yeah. if, if it's one or two, then yeah. it is about the individual. Yeah. But one, yeah. once it's you know ten or twenty or thirty, yeah. Um, then then perhaps you're more comfortable as a yeah. as a collective, yeah. as a group. Yeah. Um, the, the other areas where attitudes um, look a bit different um, is around kind of the pace of social change, which is distinct from that sort of social liberalism question we talked about before. Um, so people in regions more likely to agree that things are changing too fast, um, more likely to agree that, you know, we're moving too far away from traditional values. Um, so that seems to be the sort of cultural divide that, that we pick up, at least in the, in the survey data yeah yeah there i mean i think this is just a really human thing you know if you don't see a lot of change around you it's the change that happens stands out and i I still notice it you know when i come to the city now it's it's there's so much happening and so much in your face that i notice yeah and if i notice it Imagine, you know, some someone that has been in that town all their lives. Yeah, um, so they went to the city 20 years ago. Yeah, it was yeah. doable. It wasn't yeah. too intimidating. Yeah. Now you get off the train and it's yeah. Yeah. chaos. I mean, you know, when <laughs> I came down to, to Melbourne that time, you know, it was just, whoa, <laughs> this is so different to what I'm used to. And, and you know, maybe that's um, because Canberra is a particular place that it is and Parliament House is, is again, you know, wider than the rest of Australia pretty much. Um, uh, so maybe it's that sort of things. But I think it's it's really just that very human thing. If, if you don't see a lot of change around you, you notice the change. And whereas you guys are dealing with change all the time, you know, Martin Place has lost a building since I was here last. Um, those sorts of things I notice, but if you were working in Martin Place every day, you would notice. notice. I was um, reading, um, mentioned this before, Judith Brett's quarterly essay on the city-regional divide um, on on the way up here, which is sort of fantastic look at some of these issues over kind of a long historical span. Um, And and she sort of talks about um, cultural divide emerging because of sort of a shift in the national conversation. So... um, you know, prior to the 80s, um, you know, we very much grounded that idea of, you know, Australian culture was the kind of easygoing farmer, the kind of the country person was sort of the, the central um, figurehead for, for what it meant to be an Australian. Um, and since then, we've sort of now shifted and we view ourselves more as a kind of multicultural, city-based kind of place. Do you think that kind of shift in, in cultural identity um is of concern to, to people in the regions? Do you think they sort of see that and, and feel that they've been left behind by that, that shift in the way Australians perceive themselves? Yeah, I think, uh, I think, um, I think there is a worry uh, for a lot of people that, uh, you know, the rest of Australia is moving on. Um, and, you know, we have this kind of split about rural Australia and the bush generally um, and it's confusing if you live there because you're on the one hand told that you're 
and it's not me personally, but an essential part of Australian the Australian character. You know, Sydney Olympics rolls out with its stockman, you know, in a Cobras and dries a bones. Um, but then on the other hand, it's, you know, the message from the 80s and 90s in politics was very much, you know, to farmers get big or get out. Um, you know, if you're not paying your way, uh, you know, we can't be expected to cross-subsidise you. You've just got to, you know, get on with it. So, so I think there's that conflict. There's these two... Um, ideas pulling in different directions and yet you still you know um, I've forgotten her name now the jockey the the uh, okay. Michelle Payne who you know that's like the Australian dream to some you know female jockey from some little country town you know and and she won the Melbourne Cup and beat all the foreign horses and it was everyone was like yes you know not just from the the bush perspective but from a gender perspective and and you know um so so i think there's these kind of targeting messages and i, I you know I, it's confusing i think to people um so that is a very nice segue perhaps to finally getting onto the the politics um of this right um and i want to leave enough time for questions i know we could probably talk about this yeah, yeah. all night but yeah. um um, so, so this is from the work that I mentioned that we're doing at the moment on the minor party vote. Um, so it's looking at um, – we've defined minor party as kind of first preference Senate vote for parties other – part, any party other than Labor, Liberals, Nationals or the Greens. Um, so you can see it by election over time and also by distance um, from the, the capital city GPO. Um, so, you know, two things. Clearly the vote is going up over time and there was a, quite a big almost sort of step change between 2010 and 2013. Um, and the city-regional divide is widening. So if you, you know, if you look back at 2004 or 2007, um, regions were, you know, slightly more likely to vote for minor parties than cities. But you can see that that gap is, is increasing over time. Um, you know, why, what do you think sits behind this i think it's protest and trust so i i don't think people are getting um feel like they're getting value from the major parties and because expectations are low they've got nothing to lose or they feel they've got nothing to lose and i think it might be as simple as that i i i mean certainly our research suggests that's a big important No, no. So that's a really interesting thing about this, um, and which which feeds into Gabby's theory is that it's about far more than one nation. So if you start splitting up that Senate vote by state, um, you see in Queensland and New South Wales it's about one nation, but in South Australia it's Nick Xenophon, in Tasmania it's Jackie Lambie, in Victoria it's Darren Hinch, um, and those parties don't, or those individuals don't have a lot in common in terms of politics or ideology. Um, so it, it looks a lot like a protest vote, that people are sort of going for someone other than the major parties and they're going behind um, someone that has sort of brand recognition in their particular state. Um, and when we, um, you know, start cutting the attitudinal data by who you vote for, um, what we see is the one characteristic that separates someone that votes for a minor party compared to someone that votes for the major parties is, is trust. Um, so you can't separate them on an economic scale, 
you can't separate them on kind of social attitudes. Trust is the one area, whether you vote for Nick Xenophon or Pauline Hanson or another minor party, um, on average, you have lower trust than, than if you vote for one of the, the major parties. Yeah. Um, a farmer I was talking to yesterday, in fact, um, was lamenting the loss of Jackie Lambie from the House. And, and so many times you hear when people talk about um, voting for a minor party, I don't agree with everything they say, but at least, you know, they, they seem to believe what they are saying. Uh, and they're saying it in a normal way that that I can understand. And and they have other life experience other than you know staffer, lawyer. I mean, if you look at the professions across the parliament, it's it's really stark. You know the and you look at the trend yeah, over yeah, time. Yeah. Kind of, yeah. Job before politics. Yeah. It's become much much narrower. Yeah. With yeah. each successive parliament. Um. So th- you know, I think that. I, I entirely agree. I think that is the you know the most important piece of the puzzle about why the vote's been going up. Um, do you think that that plays more in regional areas? Why do you think that divide is getting bigger? Uh, regional, I think when when I first came to um, to move to the country, I was surprised at the um, at the conversations. So people who moved into town that I knew who I would talk to during elections could be rusted on in a in a um, city to a particular party um, for example the Labor Party in the city and move to the country and change their vote as I guess you know people around you rub off number one number two in a country town you often you see your member you tend to see your member because they stick out. You know, they'll come and open the show or something like that. And and so, you know, people like one Labor voter in the city said to me, well, you know, I met Albie Schultz at the local show and he helped me with, you know, various club things that I wanted or a grant or something like that. And, and they changed the way they vote. Um, I think there's a conversation in the country around politics that feels like politics doesn't relate to them. And I'm not saying it's not happening in the city because clearly it is from that line, you know, 1K from the um, GPO. But but I think that the sense of divide is driving that that protest more. It's really and, interesting, and, isn't it? Though? Yeah. I mean, you're saying that the local member's really visible. Yeah. Um, which is kind of less the case in in the city in in my experience um yet they feel more disconnected yeah, from yeah, from yeah, politics yeah. despite that visibility yeah, yeah um so again it's sort of maybe the sort of the, the individual versus the group they yeah. might like their local yeah. member respect them, and you find people fall off the the party when there's a change of mp so that that um goodwill sort of goodwill in the person means a lot more so you you might look askance, you know. You might look at other places when, when there's a retirement or you know that sort of thing. So, I mean, the the interesting thing will be now whether whether these electorates start to get more marginal. I know for the state um, by-election, we, we uh, Katrina Hodgkinson resigned, uh, and our seat became much more marginal. So people voted for Shooters and Fishers, and I think the margins, you know quite close now 
we're seeing the member a lot more now. Yeah. <laughs> That's going to be the upside of a more marginal seat. You yeah. might get some more infrastructure yeah. money as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so I did want to leave uh, enough time for, for audience questions. We're going to wrap up at, at 7.15, but um, Megan has a microphone. So if you have a, a question you're, you're burning to ask, please put your hand up and um, we will take that. Otherwise, Gabby and I will just sit here and talk politics some more. <laughs> Um, so I sort of have two questions. The first one's a very simple one, which is about the graph you've got behind you. Um, and it's about why you chose to consider the Greens a major party, um, which I think makes the graph look very different, um, particularly in inner cities. And the second one is sort of about uh, the role of the media. So Gabrielle, you've clearly had a career where you've worked for a lot of different newspapers, uh, very different ideological positions. Um, and sort of I was wondering about how media consumption is different in the regions and rural areas versus in the major cities. Yeah. Um, so I'll quickly cover off on the, on the chart. Um, and in the report, we kind of present the chart both ways with the Greens as major or minor because, I th you know, it's kind of that's, they're, the, they're the party that's difficult to, to classify. Um, and the way the chart looks different if you put Greens as a minor party instead is you get a, a U shape. So the, the inner city um, has a higher vote for minor parties. Um, it doesn't really change the um, overall pattern in terms of the upward trend and, you know, basically once you get 10Ks out, it doesn't have any kind of impact on the line after that. Um, so the kind of the, the questions are still the same, um, but, but you're right to identify that. I think that's kind of a, a margin call which category you put them in. Which, which category do you put them in? Right. And, um, you know, the other point is that they have much more of a kind of a national presence, whereas the other parties tend to be very state-based. Uh, on media consumption, um, often uh, the daily telly is on the kitchen tables of the older um, people in, that I've been speaking to. Um, for the younger people, no newspapers um, uh, tend to be you know, through their Facebook feeds or television, television news. Yeah, is there a local newspaper? There, there are two local newspapers, oh. which is unusual. We've got a Fairfax uh, local newspaper, which um, I worked at for a year when my kids were little, and uh, it was actually really good to understand more about the way um, rural towns work. Uh, and there's uh, recently started, well, that I think four years ago, an, an independent started from someone who worked at the local paper and was cranky about what Fairfax was doing about jobs and things like that. So he started um, his own weekly paper. I um, sort of suspect that media fragmentation is feeding into the kind of overall picture as well, or certainly will going forward if you kind of look at where Australians got their news from um, in election campaigns over time. Um, you know, mainstream newspapers, TVs are on the way down, online up from a, from a low base, but clearly increasing fast. Um, and, um, you know, you can look at what's happening in the US or the UK and get these kind of increasingly fragmented media environments where you know people on the left are all going to websites on the left and people on the right are going to websites on the, on the right and there's it's not that kind of common 
ground. So not only have you got difference of opinions, but sometimes you've got a kind of an entirely different fact base that you're working with, um, which I think is, you know, quite frightening for how, how you can kind of have political discussion um, across different groups when, when you know, you're not even talking to each other. Yeah, the, the other thing, I mean, even though we've got two newspapers, local news really does worry me because if you can't, if you don't have a local news outlet in your town, you've got no local news. You know, the, the big media companies aren't going to serve up local news and so you Being do radio? get that. Sorry? ABC Radio? Is ABC Radio, yeah, but often, you know, it's for a really sort of micro level of news about, you know, what's happening, say, in your local council or Main Street um, or various, you know, committees or charities or the, the pictures of the kids at school, you know, that's what a local newspaper does re- really well. They can do it really well and they can they can put a local um, angle on uh, state and national news, which I think is also really important. That's what I tried to do when I was there. Um, but Warren Buffett got into local newspapers for for a while. I think he's he's sort of um, he's died down on that a bit as a as a charity or as a business. No, 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 as a business model because he thought you know at the at the beginning of media disruption that that would be you know something long term. I think it, I think it's sort of dampened down his enthusiasm a little bit. But but hopefully people keep investing in local news because it's really important. So you um, you touched on the loss of tertiary education opportunities as a limiting factor for opportunity for particularly young people in regional areas. What role do you think the government can play in um, their funding decisions to decentralise um, tertiary education further and if you think that would be a good idea? I think it would be a great idea. I, you know, I for the life of me, I can't understand why, you know, if you have a local TAFE campus half an hour away, why it wouldn't be um, providing more courses for jobs that kids, you know, can do in their local area. I mean, you know, there's a shortage of trades in our town. Um, you have to wait a long time. Um, and and they are jobs. Obviously, something's not marrying up, you know, if, the, if you've got a kid there that wants an apprenticeship, and they have to go to Canberra, um, you know, something's something's not working. The other thing the kids tell me about is um, the fact that they feel in some ways forced into university. So the, the message that they get, the way one kid put it, was there's this super highway to university to a degree that they're not really sure what it does or what it's going to provide. And if you want, uh, say, an apprenticeship or, or some sort of trade skill, it's like a back road compared to the superhighway and you can't – you've got to find out yourself pretty much um, how to get there, what the requirements are. Um, the other thing around the trades, though, uh, they tell me is that, you know, you've got to lock yourself in for four years. And, th- and that can be hard, especially if every other kid is going away to uni or – doing their gap year or traveling or or whatever so those sorts of issues i mean having having courses at least close by or 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 by distance i think what's happening now some of them which is a really good idea is they do a set amount of work 
So they're not doing the old when I was going through school and and friends of mine were doing apprenticeships. They would they would have to go once or twice a week to TAFE. They they do it in a block, so they do a week. So you can kind of re- relocate to a course, do your week, and then come back and do you know your six weeks work in between. So just flexibility, I think. I think um, in terms of sort of university education, that the trend is actually going the opposite way. Um, and that's been driven by the sort of demand-driven higher education system. So universities can now, you know, the places are uncapped. They can take as many as they want. Um, students are increasingly choosing the the bigger universities in the city. So I, um, my understanding is that enrolments in universities are on the decline and um, enrolments in city universities are on the way up um, because of, of those reforms. Um, so decentralising further um, in that environment, I think, is a difficult proposition for, for higher for university education. Thank you. That's a great introduction. I'm Caroline Perkins, the executive director of the Regional Universities uh, Network. Um, so, so look, I, I think um, region, there are regional universities with headquarters throughout um, regional cities and regional Australia, and smaller campuses and study centres. So, and numbers are growing and numbers are still growing i think overall the system has stalled a little bit i think there's still a gap in higher education attainment as you pointed out between the regions and the cities so we in regional australia i think we need to grow people who do higher education but also we need more people in the higher level trades so my question is really about whether you think advocating for a more place-based approach to general education and health policy and programs is the way to go. In fact, programs perhaps more widely. So, for example, if you have one policy for university funding, perhaps you do need to have a particular strategy for the regions. And the same with VET, if you have a general policy for vocational education and training across the state, perhaps that's not the right way to approach it. You do need to have a regional focus and think about how to address the uptake um, of, of trades uh, in the region. So I wonder if you could talk around that to emphasise the place-based a bit more. Yeah, um, place-based is really important. Maggie Kate, the um, girl that I mentioned earlier who went into medicine, did two years and, and got a great education in the city, but breathed an absolute sigh of relief when she could come back to Wagga because Wagga was a place she knew, she had relatives there, um, she was able to have a dinner with her family once a week. It made such a difference to her quality of life and to her fitting in. But it, it was interesting because she, she said there was a real kind of Sneering's probably too strong a word, but there was a um, a feeling that she was limiting her opportunities by studying at a regional campus, whereas she just loved the idea of going back. And probably if she could have started that degree there, she would have started that degree. Um, so it was really important. A lot of kids I know prefer to go to Wagga or to Albury because they don't want to live in a city. They might know it, a city, um, but they don't want to live there. They feel more comfortable in a regional town. And she, she gave me all these examples, you know, of how she would she would run into people that she knew and, you know, she would recognise people coming through Wagga Base Hospital. Um, so I think place is so important. And I don't like the idea of this kind of 
sort of almost a class structure between the unis. I think that's really self-defeating for for regional communities. Yeah, I agree with that. I wonder if, um, and I'm, I'm far from an expert on higher education policy, so you can correct me if I'm wrong, but if we've had too much of an emphasis on kind of all universities offering everything. So, you know, every every university feels the need to have a law degree, for example. Um, you know, should it be the case that a regional university says, well, you know, what are the skill set, um, you know, agricultural technology or whatever it is, let's, let's focus on providing those degrees? Well, look, I think regional universities do both. I think we do have specialist degrees, like in ag agriculture, but we do actually have to offer a bit of a broad scope just to try and keep more regional kids in the regions. Um, because if you don't offer the whole spectrum of degrees, that will just facilitate more people going to, to capital cities to study. We know three quarters of our graduates work in the regions, so really the best way to keep trained professionals in the regions is to train more in the regions. So in one sense, we have to we have to do both, I think. I mean, and I guess my comment probably wasn't even just about a regional city thing. I mean, why does every university in a capital city have to offer a, a law degree? Maybe there's a scope for kind of rationalisation across both. Do we have any more questions? Hello, I work for the Planning Institute. We're having a, a discussion nationally about what, what, what use is a national urban policy or a national settlement strategy, and do these various initiatives, like what you were just discussing around regional education, do they come together and do they have any role nationally as a, a coherent suite of policies? Well, that, uh, that is a, a tough one. I think, um, you know, sort of... <laughs> Again, to refer back to the Judith Brett essay because I just found it fascinating to, to see that history. I mean, she talked a lot about um, you know population policy in Australia throughout history and and how we've had sort of various attempts over the decades to to try and um, you know shift population to the regions. Um, you know, sort of between the the first and second world wars, that was about you know actually just giving people farming land and, and setting them up with kind of small farms and saying, you know, off, off you go farm and um, that didn't go terribly well and then it was about, um, you know, trying to incentivise manufacturing and, and power companies to, to move out to regional areas um, which is, you know, now no longer kind of promoting jobs in those areas. So um, my view is that it's, it's quite hard for, for governments to kind of fight against these broader economic forces um, in terms of, you know, coming up with a, a population policy and a set of incentives that are going to work to, to shift the overall dynamic. Um, I think they should be doing more in terms of um, trying to ease the pressures in the city um, in terms of planning policy that you mentioned, um, in terms of infrastructure. Um, I think they're, um, you know, clearly we are having some pretty negative side effects from growth in the major cities and I think there are policy levers that governments have available to, to, to manage that population better. Yeah, I love the idea of decentralisation, which is probably... I, I think, though, you know, we have to think of it in a different way. Politics um, has become so polarised now that you get a subject like decentralisation and you get the progressive side of politics that just will not engage with it and or, you know, a policy like climate change that affects agriculture so so much and regional cities so much and you know the right won't engage with it so i just think we need to sort of change the debate in a way and and 
decentralization i think of not so much as growing my little town but i think in i think of it in that way as easing congestion i mean i saw some abs projections that sydney and melbourne are getting to 8 million or 8.5 by um 2050 or you know even if that's uh their projections obviously so we don't know what's going to happen but i just think there must be a way of piggybacking on infrastructure and they don't need to be as far out as we are um, but surely there's a there's a role for kind of satellite cities around um, you know satellite regional cities around big cities where you can get some sort of um, complementarity between the two yeah I mean I suspect that that works for, for regions that are commuting distance within the, the cities I think mm. um, you know we, we are seeing that in, in the big cities at the moment but what that does for the regions that are further afield and, and not without you know not within commuting distance I yeah. think is a, a much more challenging <laughs> question yeah yeah and and as far as education goes I mean Maggie Kate got into medicine on a regional quota so you know if you come from a small school like ours, you get, uh, a f- I think it's a 5.8R bonus. Um, and she's just graduated, so so she was a good bet. Um, and there was a lot of angst, uh, she said, amongst city students that she'd, they'd perceive, she'd perceived to have, you know, skipped the queue somehow or got some special benefit. But, you know, she went through in a, in a, in a year 12 that, uh, where she was, they had to put a special class, maths class, three unit maths class, um, a special chemistry class, um, because those subjects just aren't studied in our local high school. And, you know, by way of contrast, um, again, Andrew Lee told me that he went to James Roos and they didn't have a two unit class because everyone had to do three and four unit. So we didn't have a three and four unit. And, and and it was a two unit general class that is normally run as a mass class in the in the high school. So, you know, you can't. It, it, there are limitations, and policy has to respond to that. Um, unless you want two separate populations, and you get something like Brexit and Trump, and you know, I don't know about you, but I don't want a don- an Australian style Donald Trump here. Um, so you can forget it and say, well, everyone's just going to live around the outside of Australia and, and say, you know, the market will work, work out everything else. But, um, you know, if, if, if that's the Australia you, you want, then, you know, that's a serious conversation to have and, and to admit. We might have time for one very quick one. Hi there. I'm actually from Tamora, a couple of towns over from from you. So <laughs> I didn't realise you're from Harden. So it's it's good to hear your perspectives, and um, it's interesting that a lot of them are quite similar to mine. Um, one thing I'd be interested to know, though, is there's a lot of tiny little towns and villages. And what's your view on on a threshold for for a minimum size uh, town? Like I grew up in a very tiny little village that has been in a continuous decline since I've ever known it and the best thing for it is and the people in it but they've moved to other places and become part of bigger and better communities which aren't massive cities they're just the next towns across so, ha- so how big is the population that you grew up in um tomorrow's four and a half thousand people oh no i mean the little the very little town less than 200 right 
Um, I actually don't really call it home. Yeah. Tomorrow's home. Yeah. Um, but there's a there's a lot of ba- a lot of debate and a lot of people across time have said, oh, there's you know all these small towns they should shut up shop and move into the next you know agglomerate regionally to to be to be stronger regionally, which I think has some merits in some cases. I'm not saying you take Harden and put it in Young, of course, mm. but you might take some of the you know, people from Wollombeen eventually end up in 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 Harden, for example. Mm. Um, you know, what what are your thoughts on that that really what? tiny micro agglomeration yeah, yeah, well, benefits it might have? Uh, when I talk about government policy, I, I'm sort of I I guess I think about it more in the. Um, George Megalogenis talks about, you know, a role now for a more active government. I guess that's what I'm talking about rather than going the full Soviet and saying you can't live here, you've got to live over there. Um, there are towns, small towns that uh, that come back to life and, and yeah, they're rare, um, but I don't see how you could move people on if they still want to live there. Um, what happens seems to happen eventually and we've got a very little village that was our local post office um we've had to change our local post office because that village is now so small you know that it's not feasible to get post through there and i know post offices closed a lot in the 90s there was a lot of rationalization but say another village close to us um which you probably know is jugion and that's i think the population there's about 250 um, someone started a great cafe there. They've now had a pub upgrade, million dollar pub upgrade. It's on the Hume Highway, so it has that economy of, you know, people coming through and stopping. And you know, it has com- been completely revitalised. And there are interior homeware stores selling four thousand dollar fire pits. I mean, I don't know who that who buys them, but someone must buy them. You know, there's a wine shop there selling local produce and I just think there must be you know tourism is a big thing so a lot of towns you know Tamora has that aviation museum which is amazing and I hear they sell you know 15,000 tickets to their annual or biannual show yeah right yeah yeah they couldn't cope yeah. Yeah. So, so there's every every town is trying to you know find the golden goose, and you know Parks has the Elvis festival. I mean, there's you know there's Abba festivals, there's big potato pump festival. <laughs> yeah. So we're all in there trying. But uh, yeah, I don't think you can make people move, and I think there are there is a chance that you can revitalise towns. But you know, I agree, it's really hard. Um, and I don't know that there's a policy answer. And I assume that once the ca- town loses some critical mass where you can't buy a loaf of bread and a, and a pint of milk, then you're pretty well buggered, aren't you? Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I don't think government should be forcing people to leave, but nor should they be kind of artificially propping it up if it, it sort of gets to that point where it, um, you know, it's, it's really just going to die or fizzle out and people are moving on. I don't think government should be trying to kind of save those places they should be helping the individuals within those places um, transition to the nearby towns if that's where the opportunities are um, so on that cheery note <laughs> um, I'll, I'll close off the discussion um, if everyone can can please join me um, in thanking Gabrielle for her wonderful insights and Danny <laughs>
Thanks for coming. Um, Gabrielle, when is your book coming out? Just so everyone knows. Next year. Let's keep it vague. Um, so if you're interested in these <laughs> issues, um, stay tuned for Gabby's book. Yeah. Um, if you're interested in kind of the politics of minor party voting, um, we'll be putting a report out. Uh, Grattan Institute will be putting a report out in February on the topic. So um, look out for that one as well. And um, thank you to all of you for joining us. Thank you. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy, with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate, grattan.edu.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.